This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is sponsored by the Union of British Columbia Performers. UBCP is an autonomous branch of the Alliance of Canadian Cinema, Television, and Radio Artists. For more about UBCP Actra, visit ubcp.com. That's ubcp.com. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Ferminger. My mission is to pull back the curtain on Vancouver's film and television industry and expose its beating heart, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom style, by getting deep and down and a little dirty with the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. Today, we welcome Hiro Kanagawa to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Hiro Kanagawa is a storyteller who wields an array of tools to tell his stories. He's an actor whose lengthy list of credits include iZombie, Smallville, Caprica, DC Legends of Tomorrow, Salvation, The Romeo Section, The Man in the High Castle, where he plays Taishi Okamura, the Yakuza nemesis to Joel De La Fuente's Inspector Kido, and Altered Carbon, where he plays Captain Tanaka, the conflicted and compromised head of the Bay City Police in the smash hit Netflix series Altered Carbon, which I just said, because this whole thing is just riddled with typos. Ugh, I'm going to fix that in post, okay? Or maybe not. We're just going to keep going. He also lit up the screen as a former Yakuza assassin in Parabola, the short film from his High Castle co-star, Lee Shorten, that co-stars another High Castle co-star and YVR Screen Scene podcast guest, Mayumi Yoshida, who also made a short film that also co-starred Hiro. And that one's called Akashi. Hiro is also an accomplished playwright and sought-after story consultant. He was story editor on several critically acclaimed and highly underrated Canadian television series, Da Vinci's Inquest, Da Vinci City Hall, Intelligence, and Blackstone. He, his plays, Tiger of Malaya and The Patron Saint of Stanley Park, have been performed across Canada, and his most recent play, Indian Arm, received the 2015 Jesse Richardson Award for Outstanding Original Script and the 2017 Governor General's Literary Award for Drama. So today we're going to talk about all of that. We're going to talk about storytelling. We're going to talk about the kinds of stories that Hiro loves to tell through his acting and also through his work as a playwright. And we're just going to talk about whatever Hiro wants to talk about because I'm so excited that he's come all this way to be here today. So welcome, Hiro Kanagawa, to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I, so as I was saying, as you as you were sitting down... Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like a lot when other people read it out like that. It is, but that's not even everything. That is that is not everything. Like there's there's so much more that I that I didn't include. I didn't talk about like I was preparing to come in today and my husband was like, "Oh, you have to talk about best in show because that's like one of the best the best scenes or or you know, you have yeah, to Yeah, you know, that one scene <laughs> yeah. in Best in Show. I I'm probably recognized on the street more for that one little scene. <laughs> than anything else do people know, come and up and say things like uh, where's the where's the pet store or i need no, to they, go, they, they they come up to me and they go you were in best in show or you know or was that you in best in show yeah and they don't know who i am they just know that scene and yeah. it's astonishing because you know that was i don't know like almost 20 years ago now and my hair is completely almost completely gray now but yeah they, they love it. <laughs> the customs agent in havana cuba the customs agent in Havana, Cuba, asked you. Asked me about that scene. Wow. And then, were you, you smuggling know, something at the time? No, were you able to get no. out of it? <laughs> and then, in uh, you know, a couple times in Mexico, just like walking on the beach. Wow. Like random Mexican people. I find that so, incredible. Yeah. Because, I mean, it, it is a... It's a wonderful performance, and I know that sometimes when my husband's feeling low, he will go on YouTube and just watch that, watch that clip, but... You're so much more than that as well, right? Like, it doesn't really sum up the essence of, or maybe it does. What do you think about that, being known in Cuba and Mexico and all around the world? Well, I that? think that, I, I think I have a, a lighthearted 
attitude toward life, you know. So and but there's, you know, Vancouver hasn't had a lot of comedy uh, productions. Yeah. And uh, so I've the opportunities to do comedy have been few and far between. Okay. Um, so we just haven't had the chance to see you do comedy very much because of. I've had a few comedic yeah. turns, and I think that I've you know taken advantage of them. But uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't by any means say I'm a funny man. No, I I, I've only um, spent five minutes with you, and I probably wouldn't say that about (laughs) you either, Hiro. (laughs) But you, you def. I mean, given the opportunity to shine, oh, shine you did Mm -hmm. in that scene. So anyway, that was one of the many, many credits, and many, you know. And I, I didn't even mention the fact that you've just been working on another play, and you just did a a reading of it. Like there's, Mm -hmm. there's a lot going on. So I want to begin, however, yes, with some time travel. All righty. So I'm going to pull up. There's the TARDIS. There's the DeLorean. You can choose your your. Uh, there's the one from the time machine. You know, you can choose your time travel uh, vessel of choice. Um, all of them. The DeLorean. Well, the DeLorean. The wow, this is really with. the season for yeah. DeLorean. I want to go back in time to your earliest beginnings uh, as a storyteller. And I, I'm stuck on that word storyteller because that's mm-hmm. how I have somebody who's been watching you from afar for a long time. That's how I. How I see you is that a fair mm-hmm. a fair label to use? I think so. I think um, narrative Ooh. is very important to me. Yeah. Um, I think that you could say that human beings are the storytelling ape. You know. I love that. That that's one thing that certainly distinguishes us from from other animals. I mean, you know, like chimpanzees and dolphins, and every, the more we learn about them, yeah, the more we learn that they do, do things that we once thought were the exclusive domain of, of, of humanity. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure we know yet that any other animals tell stories yeah. in the ways that we do. We definitely have required it uh, for our for our evolution, for right? For our evolution, yeah. for our culture. Although I saw an interview with Timothy Leary once where, you know, during his acid trip days, he said that... Um, he could communicate with dolphins when he was high and that they had epic, <laughs> epic, <laughs> epic stories about the rise and fall of human civilization from their point of view, from the point of view of these cetaceans in the sea, you know, because they saw the Greek armadas come and go and the Portuguese armadas That's come amazing. And go and, yeah. so- I mean, I don't believe that he didn't have that conversation. I mean, mm-hmm. who's to say? At what point in your development that? Because we've we've gotten into the DeLorean. Mm-hmm. Wh- where? What year are we going to? And where are we going? I think that um, when I was in elementary school, um, I first developed uh, an aspiration to write. Okay. I remember in sixth grade writing a very long short story for you know for a sixth grade assignment yeah i mean it was it was just way beyond it was ridiculous how way beyond it was yeah for whatever the assignment was so you're saying and, in, in uh, length or in just yeah, the well, substance it was of what in, was there it was in length and in substance too probably you know it was a very science fiction kind of you know it was pretty imaginative as i recall and uh I think I got like an A plus 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 or something for it, <laughs> and it wasn't it wasn't just the um, the quality of the thing that I did, but it actually inspired all of my friends because we were competitive with one another. Mm. So it actually inspired them to to kind of outdo themselves as well. Yeah. And so the teacher was kind of really impressed by the fact that I had not only done this thing. But that, you know, my other friends who barely, you know, usually barely put any effort into yeah. writing English essays or stories or whatever. Yeah. Um, they kind of got the bug, too, for, for a time. And uh, that's the first, you know, serious incident that I remember. Um, and then uh, when I went to college, I went to Middlebury College in Vermont, which has a very... Um, illustrious writer's school called the Breadloaf School of English. Okay. Uh, Robert Frost's cabin is on the Breadloaf campus, you know, so there's a great history there. Um, 
Wow. But when I went to Middlebury, intending to to take English and write, um, the classes there, when you you know freshman year when you're signing up for your classes, it's by lottery, and I had a very oh. low lottery number my freshman year, and so by the time it was time for me to enroll, all the classes were full oh. that I wanted to take. Yeah, and. Um, the dean who was assigned to me at the time said, you know what, I know you really wanted to take English, but here's what we're going to do. I'm going to direct you to the smartest teachers at the school, and you're going to study with them until you have an opportunity to do what you want. Yeah. But of course what happened was I studied with the smartest teachers at the school, and then I went off in all kinds of different <laughs> liberal arts <laughs> tangents because that was possible in those days, and yeah. you didn't have to like think about a career or whatever. And I wound up ultimately uh, majoring in visual art. That's quite a tangent yeah, that you that tangent. you went on in your education. I mean, yes. and it's we don't really get the opportunity these days anymore to to, to experience those kind no, of of that's a tragedy. tangents. Yeah, because then, I mean, you discovered something something new there. I have noticed though you haven't mentioned acting yet. Uh, acting, when did yeah. that come? Uh, the first acting I did was for a student film in high school. Okay. And I also was in a production of West Side Story. Obviously, in, in were you high a, a jet or a, a shark? I was a, which, which is the Latino game? Oh. Are they the sharks or the I, jets? I don't, I don't know. I've forgotten that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not well, uh, the guy in the musical who, theater zone the guy, today. Yeah, well, the, whoever, the guy who falls in love with Maria, uh-huh. I was like his best buddy, I think. And I actually wind up killing the guy that yeah. he gets framed for. I wind, you know, I can't remember his name now. Yeah. That's terrible. That's, I, I mean, and I have actually positioned myself as like a musical theater nerd mm-hmm. on this on this show. I, I've seen excerpts from musicals with my guests who come in. I am deeply ashamed, and oh, yeah, uh, I'm okay. not going to edit that out. That's staying. I got to oh. walk around oh, with that on my face. So you, study so. Up on West Side Story. So, well, you know, I mean, I know Romeo and Juliet, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, same, same thing. Uh, so, so that, that experience then of, mm-hmm. of, Doing West Side Story, uh, what what kind of impact did that have on you? Like, did you have a moment there where, like, I want to stand in front of people and perform, or was it a, a revelatory experience, or was it just something you did? It was just something I did, and you know, it, um, I was probably searching for something. Yeah. Um, in those days, I had a in high school, I had a, a rock band, as as many of my friends did. Yeah. And some of them have gone on to be uh, professional musicians in Japan. So I went to high school in Japan. Okay. Um, so, you know, I think in high school my aspiration was to uh, to be a rock star. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, moving on into college, well, I wanted to write, but then I got into visual art. And I did take theater class in, in college. Uh, I didn't major in theater. Yeah. But I did take theater classes there. And then... Um, in the late 80s, early 90s, the visual art world was going in a direction where visual, a lot of visual artists were getting into performance yeah. art, you know, and so because I had a little bit of theater background and I had this, uh, you know, musical background, um, performance art kind of came naturally to me. And where was this? Where were you um, after wielding that, that specific kind of tool? After Middlebury, I, I uh, lived in Montreal for a year. Because oh. Montreal is like an hour and a half from Middlebury, yeah. and uh, I still had friends at school. So you're a performance artist in Montreal. I did a, a sh- I did a show at McGill. Yeah. Um, called Hashish. I, I love um, it already. I, <laughs> I believe it, it is written by a Vancouver. Pl- I, I believe the man's name is Gordon Armstrong. Okay. He was a a Vancouver playwright. I think he may have passed away from um, during the AIDS epidemic. Oh. Um, I feel like there was at one time um, a scholarship or, a, a, you know, like a grant. Yeah. An arts grant here in Vancouver that was named in his honor. Okay. Um, but yeah, it was a, I, I did a play called Hashish. You did Montreal, Hashish in Montreal. In Montreal, <laughs> yeah. And then I had briefly, um, you know, some uh, music, rock star stuff going on there and uh, <laughs> I did, you know I did some I took some 
theater classes and acting classes in Montreal. And then I went to Philadelphia for a year um, to the Tyler School of Art, which is the grad school of Temple University. Yeah. And that's where I really started to focus more on performance art than making objects. Yeah. Um, then I kicked around in Tokyo for a couple of years. Yeah. And uh, did some performance arty things there. Yeah. <laughs> and then I came, that's when I moved to Vancouver in 1990. Oh, okay. okay. So, the very DeLorean much is now we're in, Vancouver. in the West End in 1990. And uh, I wound up finishing my MFA at SFU. Yeah, okay. And they had just started a, a program called Interdisciplinary Studies. It was a Master of Fine Arts in Interdisciplinary Studies. Yeah. That seemed right up my alley. So yeah. That's the program that I got into. and uh, I don't want to park the DeLorean just uh -huh. yet because I do want to ask about um, about family and about your parents mm -hmm. specifically and, um, you know, what they thought of the path that you were choosing, which seems like you were like a little bit like a Rolling Stone going all over the place, getting your education, having experiences like what 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 did what did they want you to be? And, and was it in line with what you wanted to be? It was not in line at all. Uh, my father is uh, an academic. He was the uh, chairman of the veterinary department at Hokkaido University, oh, which okay. is one of the seven imperial universities in Japan. So he was a very big deal in academia in Japan. And uh, he absolutely was against anything to do with the arts yeah. for me. Um Luckily for me, he had very my parents had very in, little influence on my life after age 14 because when we moved back to Japan when I was 14, I went to a boarding school in Tokyo. Oh, okay. And they were in Sapporo, which is 800 miles north. Yeah. So I I didn't live at home after age 14. Yeah. You know. So for all intents and purposes, you know, except for the times when I went home on on breaks, yeah. spring, summer, winter breaks, um, they really had no influence over what I was doing. So. Yeah. What did they end up? Okay, so we're back here, DeLorean's mm -hmm. all, we've parked it now. What, what did they end up thinking about the path that you've chosen then, especially, you know, as you've had, you know, success and shown that you can actually, you know, make this life mm -hmm work and be and be nurtured and supported by well, it. now now they're you know tickled, okay that's good now they're tickled <laughs> pink but you know they're happy. i mean it's because obviously um when you're when you have some success as an artist you know the prestige value for the family is exponentially greater yes. than having a son who's an accountant or a veterinarian or what have you right yeah you know so you know the fact that i'm uh I've won some awards and I'm making a good living and I'm on TV and you yeah. know, all of these things bring them quite a bit of prestige value, I think. And so they're pretty happy about that, I guess. And, and they're happy about the fact that obviously that, uh, you know, I've made a good life for myself and I have a good family and they're proud of their grandkids and, you know, all the oh, things yes. that, that, that they uh, would otherwise you know, be proud of and have. Yeah. yeah. So you didn't just stay a rolling stone going all over the place and doing hashish in Montreal and whatever. I've pretty much stayed a rolling stone, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> a rolling stone, but mostly in Vancouver for the last uh, the last few decades. So mm -hmm. 1990s, early 90s, Vancouver, can you paint a picture of the, uh, the screen scene that you encountered at that time? Or, I, I mean, I'm making the assumption that you got into the screen scene relatively mm -hmm. early then. Like, what, what did you encounter and how, how did they, what did they think about you? Yeah, that's around the time when I, um, the, it was just really getting going. Um, I think, you know, the first agents, the first productions started coming here a little bit earlier in the 80s. Yeah, the Canal Show. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, by the early 90s, um, things were picking up. But Vancouver really was not, it was not getting the A projects, yeah. you know, as we do now. Um, really kind of the low budget and TV movie kind of things were coming here. Yeah. Um, with the occasional um, feature film and so on. Um, 
and the theater scene too was really just getting going yeah. in those days. And you know, today they just announced the Governor General's Award, and three Vancouver playwrights are are nominated this really? year for the Governor General's Award in drama. So um, come along. That's way. Uh, an astonishing accomplishment, yeah. I think. It just shows, you know, how much we've uh, arrived on the national scene. Yeah. Which, you know, in the 1990s, that was not the case at all. Yeah. Uh, in either film and TV or in theater. In theater, how would you describe the the Vancouver voice of of like the the voice of drama, the voice of theater, like what is the West Coast perspective? And is it vastly different from the work that's coming out of Montreal or Toronto or the Maritimes? I think it has been, you know, I think the generation that, um, and these are people who are about 10 years younger than me. Um, if we think of companies like Boca del Lupo and Theater Replacement, yeah. um, Electric Company. New World. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Th- those those guys are all about 10 years younger than me. They all came out of school around the same time and they created these companies all around the same time. Yeah. And uh, they were very much interested in um, a much more avant-garde physical theater, not text-based, you know. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of the difference between me and them because I was always more of an East Coast, right? Yeah. Well-crafted play, well-written play, text-based kind of guy. Despite the fact that they're set in in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think that the Vancouver theater scene has evolved where um, the there's more, there's just more artists now yeah. um, who are really starting to focus on the text. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing, but um, and it's and the great thing about Vancouver is that that's informed by by like these these three decades of exploration, having done all of the the physical work, which is now a foundation for the plays that are being written. You yeah. know? So there's a lot of really interesting, uh, innovative work coming out of Vancouver and it's great to see that that's being recognized. Yeah, do you do you find at all that the the theater scene here uh, uh, runs up against or rubs up against or responds to what's going on on the film and television side at all? I don't think so. Yeah. Um, for the most part I feel like the actors who really succeed in theater in Vancouver they don't necessarily succeed in film and television and vice versa. Yeah. There's just, there's very few actors who, you know, do well in both. I worlds. think I have a handful, right? Yeah. Like Gabrielle Rose, mm-hmm. Brian Markinson, Omari Newton. There's, yeah, there's literally just a handful. Just a people, handful. Right? So, yeah. So in that sense, Jennifer um, Coffin. Yeah. And, and, and because the theater here is, <coughs> A lot more expressionistic, a lot more experimental, a lot more avant-garde. Yeah. Um, and film and TV here is not necessarily. Yeah. Because it's more industry-driven. Yeah. I don't think there's as much crossover. Yeah. <coughs> so as far though as um, we'll get in the DeLorean. Okay, I keep we're, we're just going to conduct the interview in the DeLorean. Right. In, okay, so we are in in the early 90s then. What kind of mm. career did you want uh for yourself? And you know, was it was it theater? Was it film and TV? Was it just to just to act, you know? And then how like what kind of roles were you seeing at that time? This word career is one that always uh throws me off. Journey. It's it's for much of my life. I've never thought of having a career. Mm. It's only really recently that I've even come to, you know, um, terms with that with that word Mm. and the idea that oh, I've had a career or oh, I'm having a a career as an actor. What do you think it is? Like, do you think it's your? Well, it's this whole rolling. You know, as you say, it's this whole Rolling Stone kind of... I've just been going with the flow, yeah. really. And um, 
And perhaps, you know, I, I would have gotten farther uh, sooner um, if I had taken the idea of a career more seriously and been more focused and more single-minded about having a direction, mm. you know. Um, and in fact, that, that's just something that uh, I'm thinking about now, um, partly because uh, I have, you know, two kids who, you know, need shoes and food and clothes and so on. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and that's, a, you know, that's on my mind. But also, you know, at my age, you know, I'm kind of, I don't want to just be treading water. Yeah. And um, I don't want to be spinning my wheels in the sand. You know, yeah. I always want to be moving forward to the next level. And so in that sense, I have had to uh, think more about career and direction and put some effort into that. Um, but in the early 90s, when I was uh, when I first arrived here, I had no I was just going with the flow. And if an acting gig came up, you know, I would take it if. A theater gig came up I would take it yeah um, if I had an idea to write something I would you know try and write it yeah and uh, it's um, it's just you know it's kind of astonishing that it all worked out in yeah. the end but were there good opportunities for for Japanese actors or Asian actors at that time in the early 90s well it's a, that's I've had a I've had a good career yeah you know looking back you know if you go on my imdb page, oh it goes on there's forever a, there's a shit ton of uh, credits there that is the technical uh, term yeah. shit ton yes and uh <laughs> in those days if i went to an audition you know there would be a bunch of other asian actors yeah and over the years they've fallen away it's they've just you know for whatever reason they have not been able to have a viable career or they got bored of it or whatever yeah and um there's very few people in fact i don't know that i don't really know that there's anyone from those days that i still see hmm. active in the industry anymore um one of the reasons i've been able to make a go of it as an asian actor is because from very early on, um, I was not limited to race-specific or, you know, uh, race-specific roles. Yeah. Uh, from very early on, for whatever reason, I was always um, perceived as someone who could be a doctor, who could be a detective, who could be a lawyer, um, in addition to the roles that Asian actors were kind of being pigeonholed into yeah. you know, race specific roles so that was kind of my saving grace and my bread and butter butter for a long time you know the fact that um that i could be anybody um and which is which was a great position to be in um do you think that it was because of the mindset that you you had do you did you feel that you had to convince people to see to see you that way? Like, what do you think it was where you stayed that course and, and stayed that path and then others did not? I don't know. I mean, I think it's just inherently, you know, a, a lot of film and television is about how you look. Yeah. And uh, the impression, the first impression that you convey to someone when they see you. And, uh, um, I don't know what for I don't know what the reason is but people have you know producers and directors and obviously audiences have always accepted me as in a variety of authority positions and yeah. and white collar roles you know they've always accepted me as a doctor yeah or as you know they buy me as a detective yeah. you know they'll buy me as a judge or a lawyer or uh, the owner of a, of of a, a pet company, <laughs> yeah, or, or of a pet you know, store, <laughs> you know, or whatever, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, and or you know, if they if they need a guy who's going to be the yakuza crime boss, you know, they'll buy me as that, yeah, too, you know. So in that sense, you know, there's a um, there's a wide range of stuff that I was 
able to do. And then, of course, with more experience, you get, you know, you get better and you get yeah. more confidence. And then, um, yeah, that's just, uh, as I say, I didn't really think of it as a career in those days. So mm. I wasn't pursuing a single kind of uh, direction, which... You know, now I'm more conscious of, well, I want to do these kinds of roles. I don't want to do these kinds of roles anymore. That was going to be my and next question, right? So what are the ones, let's start with the ones you don't want to do mm-hmm. anymore. What are those kind of roles? I'm kind of done with doctors, you know? I wasn't expecting you to say that. Really? I've done a lot of doctors. What is it about doctor roles that you don't want to do anymore? There's just a lot of medical jargon yeah. and... Um, you're always in a, you know, you know, in a hospital room with a lab coat and a clipboard and probably bad you news. Know. You're giving some bad news. Yeah, yeah, bad news, and it's all medical. And uh, I'm sure there's a doctor role somewhere in the universe that you know has more emotional content <laughs> and uh, would be interesting for yeah. me. But but typically. If you're getting cast in Vancouver to play a doctor role, it's doctor exposition. Yeah. You know? um, it's the doctor, yeah. you know, bringing the bad news, of, you know, disease of the week yeah. um, to, the, <laughs> to the patient. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of done with that for sure. Uh, that's the one that comes to mind. I'm, you know, the great thing about my hair going gray is that I'm now moving into... Uh, father roles okay. and grandfather roles and uh, billionaire roles, you know, like oh. I'm, you know, I'm starting to get cast as very wealthy men now, you know, so uh, and that's, that's all, you know, great. Yeah, um, I I so enjoyed watching Parabola at the Crazy Eights Gala mm-hmm. uh, earlier this year and I, I did speak to Lee Shorten uh, about you know what went into writing this, and and uh, one of the reasons, one of the things he told me was that he he created these roles for you and for Mayumi because he hadn't had the chance to see either of you doing these kind of roles, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think your role was the um, the kind of the the broken uh, former uh, assassin, and and can can you tell me about what you got to do in that role that you hadn't done before, or had you done it, and then Lee just hadn't watched all of your 170 plus credits that mm-hmm. are on your IMDb? No, that's it's. Tr- I mean, it's true. Like because he is an older character and he's broken, right? Um, there's a sadness. There's a. It's someone who's looking back over his life. And, you know, it's only, as I say, it's only recently that I've started to be cast in these older roles. Yeah. Um, so, and I think that, that generally film and television is very much these days youth oriented, mm. right? The, cen- the, the stories center around the younger characters. So it's, um, it's not as common to see a story that's centered around the old guy, who's yeah. l- you know? who's sad and broken and looking back over his life and regretting the decisions that he made and the path that he took and um so yeah that was a that was a great experience and I'm so grateful to Lee for for writing that and giving me the opportunity you know um yeah, it's a very, I mean, I love your, I mean, actually, and I think uh, Peter Shinkora was in that as well, and yes, he's been he in that seat uh, where you're sitting mm-hmm. uh, right now. But it's very exciting to see th- these voices that are coming up, people like Lee and like mm-hmm. Mayumi who are, who are you know, doing what you did and, and, and being like, yes, I'm acting and I'm also going to tell my own stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're, well, they're not only doing what I did, but they're, you know, they're much more, I think they're much more focused, much more driven. Um, and they're much more conscious of um, the importance of representation. Mm. Um, it, it's and that's something you know, like on a political level, I've always understood, but um, it's not really. I I don't know what it's, it's not really my style. I guess yeah, I would I, say to be politically outspoken. I in did that notice way, so. that in the. Um 
in the UBCP ACTRA a roundtable that you participated yes. in, mm-hmm. uh, which actually we, um, when I had Rakia Bernard on, we did talk mm-hmm. about, because she hosted that one, mm-hmm. about that exchange that you had with, with uh, Valerie Singh Turner, where you mm-hmm. were, it was like you both seemed to have very different uh, outlooks mm-hmm. and experiences, you know, on... We on do, we do. Um, <laughs> I, I think we're all trying to get to the same place. Yeah. Um, I don't agree with the conversation about uh, race and representation that some people have. Hiring professional performers makes all the difference to the success of any recorded media project. Did you know that the Union of BC Performers, ACTRA, provides agreements for all budgets and types of productions, including commercials, TV series and movies, feature films, from big budget to Canadian indies and student films, animation series, video games, web series, and even streaming video on demand, like Netflix? For instance, our highly successful UBCP ACTRA ultra-low budget agreement encourages and facilitates artistic collaboration between professional performers and independent producers who wish to produce very low budget or even no budget productions. No matter what your budget, we've got you covered and you too can benefit from UBCP ACTRA's award-winning world-class performers. So, if you need actors, voiceover artists, stunt coordinators, stunt performers, singers, dancers, puppeteers, stand-ins, background performers, ranging across any age or demographic, then just contact us at UBCP ACTRA. Make your project the very best that it can be. This message was read by a UBCP ACTRA member. Go to ubcp.com for more information. I want to talk about story mm-hmm. and uh, developing story because that is one of the things that was in your bio was that uh, was that you you assist different productions mm-hmm. with the crafting their story. So tell me first about how you kind of rolled into that work and uh, and um, some of the uh, the joys and challenges of of working with with series in this kind of way. I don't know. I, I, once again, how did I get into that work? I you did know, the rolling I just, uh, thing. It's a, I just did. <laughs> roll into it. Uh, I actually have a hand movement there. I, I guess just through being around and and uh, being in workshops and so on, um, I got a reputation as someone who uh, would be useful to have around. You know, my feedback, my presence would be useful to have around in terms of. Uh, crafting narrative yeah um, so are you are you the feedback guy me. like is that the yeah, you you come feed, in and yeah, I think I'm the feedback yeah I'm, I'm the guy who's um, I'm often the guy who is uh, who points out you know flaws in narrative structure or yeah. how the narrative structure could be improved or why the story's not working because it's missing this you know component the of narrative structure and so yeah. on and you know and and people take my ideas with a grain of salt and usually ignore them or whatever but for whatever reason they feel that uh, I'm useful to have around sometimes in these situations and so I think that's how I got into it and um, and then you know I wound up teaching um, a playwriting course at Capilano for five years and that kind of uh, you know when you teach obviously you're forced to kind of figure out in your own mind what it is that you believe. Yeah. Uh, and so I think I learned a lot about my attitude toward story, toward narrative during those five years when I was teaching those students mm. about playwriting. Okay. Yeah. What is a common mistake then that you have that you've encountered in your role as a as a fixer of stories? I think the biggest pitfall is um, stories that don't go anywhere, Mm. and they don't go anywhere because it's the same conflict repeated over and over again. There's no escalation, Um, or the events are in the wrong order, Mm. so that you know the most critical or most exciting conflict might come early. Right. Yeah. And then and so on. So, you know, that's a pretty common um, that's a pretty common pitfall. Another one is no inciting incident. Hmm. Right. So, you know, you read the script and 20 pages in, you don't know what it's about because it's only on page 25 that there's actually an inciting incident that 
that really launches a story, you know. Yeah. And uh, I think it was David Mamet who said, uh, "Get in late, get out early," right? Which mm. means, which basically means, start your story a lot later than you think it starts. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of it's probably actually j- just backstory. Right. And your your story probably starts a lot later than you think. Yeah. And then get out early because the story probably ends a lot sooner than you think as well, you know? So, um, I think that's a very useful, I find that to be a very useful rule. Yeah. I hope all rules are meant to be broken, but yeah, (laughs) except that one. Let's, let's talk about then, uh, Chris Haddock as Uh a, as a storyteller. Mm -hmm. Um, cause I, as I say, I imagine him and what's going on in his brain, you know, and the, and the kind of stories that that he's put out there are just mm-hmm. so well crafted and mm-hmm. and layered. What kind of of a, of a storyteller is he, and what, what was the he's kind of the nature epic, of your? He's really an epic storyteller. Yeah. Like his stories are sprawling, and um, it's pretty incredible. You know, when you think about Da Vinci's Inquest, Da Vinci's City Hall, and Intelligence just how many characters and how many storylines and Romeo section Romeo too, section yeah um, just how many characters and storylines uh, are going on yeah um, at the same time and the very complex you know tapestry yeah. you know and he knows how to he, build as well right yeah, like. and it's and it's a very slow burning build um, I remember when we were in the story story room on those shows you know we would Whenever a new script came out, we would just all be in astonishment at the twists and turns and so on, right? Because, you know, very often it's, you know, in those days it was in the um, Haddock Entertainment was in the Dominion building. Yeah. Right on the corner of Camby and Hastings. Yeah. It's a very historic uh, building and a lot of creative uh, offices in that place. Yeah. And I think the Haddock offices were on the fifth or sixth floor. So, um, you know, the, uh, the offices where, where Laura Lightbaum and Arvi Limatanen had their, they were on like one side of the building and then the story department was on the other side of the building. And then Chris Haddock was like, you know, three or four floors up on like <laughs> the ninth floor or something by himself. Yeah. Right. And we'd occasionally go up and have meetings with them, but, um, yeah, he was up there in his in his in his room, you know, with his cigars, yeah. weaving, <laughs> weaving la- his magic. Yeah, I'm laughing because when I visited the set of um, Romeo section, uh, which was at that time it was headquartered in the Canada Post building. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, he did have his office apart mm-hmm. from everybody else, and he mm-hmm. w- was still filled with cigar smoke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so that is the secret to uh-huh. his uh to his magic there. Um wow. I I I still get I I know I had said criminally underrated when I talking about the Haddock shows, but I just still I I I know that critics love them and fans mm-hmm. love them, but it's like the national broadcaster has, you know, I think they have not treated Chris Haddock very well. No. At all, and Romeo section was so, was ahead of its time. I mean, everything that's going on right now in the zeitgeist, in the relationship between Canada and China, mm-hmm. with with espionage, like that was he called it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's the politicizing I'll do. High Castle, High Castle is coming to a, a sad but glorious mm-hmm. end uh, in the next uh, few months, and that was another show that, in a lot of ways, tapped the tapped into the zeitgeist uh, as well. You know what's crazy about about that is season one was four years ago. Okay. I shot season one four years ago. Yeah. And it was the first major show produced by a streaming platform. Yeah. No one knew when when I said, oh, I'm working on this show for Amazon Prime. Like, what? No one, no one knew what I was talking about. Yeah. They were like, what? Amazon is making shows? They had no idea. Yeah. And uh, so at that time, I would say probably, you know, 95% of my income was from network shows, yeah. right? And now just four years later, it's very rare that I even do a network show. Right. I mean, 95% of my income now is from 
streaming platforms. Right, because Alter Carbon is a Netflix. Netflix. And I have a show coming out in two weeks on Facebook Watch, which is Facebook's amazing. first show. Yeah. And then November 1st, right. I'm in C, which is uh, yeah. uh, the Apple. uh, Apple's, yeah. one of Apple's first shows. You know, Facebook so, one is um, the an adaptation town. of a po- an incredible a podcast. podcast. Yes. What about your um your play that you that you've just been working on? I mm-hmm. think you went to Banff to work on it, and then you mm-hmm. just had a reading. Uh, what are you able to tell us about that, and and in what ways does it tap into the zeitgeist at all? It's a stage adaptation of Forgiveness, which is a family memoir by a man named Mark Sakamoto. Um, so it's a true story about his grandparents, his Scottish Canadian grandfather mm-hmm. Ralph McLean, um, fought for Canada in World War II in Hong Kong and was captured by the Japanese and spent the rest of the war in Japanese prison of war camps. Okay. Okay. And so, and obviously suffered tremendous deprivation, torture, all kinds of horrible hardships under the Japanese. Mark's grandmother, Mitsue Sakamoto, is Japanese-Canadian was born in Eburn, BC, which is uh, was no longer exists, but it was a town on Sea Island where that uh, shopping mall is now, on the way to the airport. Whoa! MacArthur Glen or whatever, MacArthur Glen, yeah, that's what it's wow. called. Wow! So she, so she was born there. She grew up in uh, Celtic Cannery, which was a Japanese Canadian neighborhood where uh, the Southlands is now. Mm-hmm. And of course, she was interned right. by the Canadian government, and suffered all kinds of hardships as a as a Japanese Canadian. So it's the it's the story of the two sides of his family, uh, who suffered on both sides of the war. Yeah. And then after the war, how you know they were able to to come together in a spirit of forgiveness. Um, and that book won Canada Reads. Uh, you know the CBC radio yes. c- competition. It won Canada Reads in 2017, um, and uh, and then you know I was uh, tasked with writing the stage adaptation, which I've done. Mm-hmm. Um, many of the family members, uh, Mitsue Mitsue Sakamoto, uh, has passed away, mm. but Ralph McLean is still with us. He's um, probably one of the few if not the only surviving member of the Canadian soldiers who fought in Hong Kong Um, but he's still with us and he lives in a veterans home in Calgary so I was able to to meet him and speak with him last year Um, I've met uh, Mitsui's son Stan who still lives in Medicine Hat uh, and and uh, her daughter Glory who lives in Richmond yeah Um, so, you know, I did a, quite a bit of uh, research and then, yeah, wrote, um, wrote so the stage adaptation and we had, a, we had a really very well-received reading a couple weeks ago at the Arts Club. Yeah. And uh, so the Arts Club and Theatre Calgary are very committed to producing it. Um, the plan now is to use next year to really firm up the design elements yeah, and then hopefully premiere in the 2021 season. Wow. I mean, and what an amazing opportunity as well to, I mean, it, you yes, you had source material to work with, but then you actually went and you spoke to people, you yeah. know, and, and what did you get from those those conversations that wasn't actually in the book? Like, how did that those conversations impact the work? What was eye-opening to me was the fact that You know, Stan Sakamoto and his brother Ron and sister Glory, Mitsui's children, they grew up in Medicine Hat. And, um, you know, they moved to Medicine Hat, um, I think, five years after the end of World War II. Mm -hmm. Um, At the time, it's in the book, there's a, I think it's mentioned, um, I don't think there's a photo, but it's mentioned that the headline of the Medicine Hat newspaper, right, was first Jap family moves to the hat, <sighs> you know. So, as you can imagine, there there was you know after World War Two ended, there were a lot of hard feelings, and there was probably still a lot of overt racism against Japanese Canadians. Yeah. You know, 
and I assumed when I went to speak with Stan and Ron and so on that uh, I would hear some of their accounts, you know, of yeah. that racism that they suffered. But in fact, you know what? They were like Ron and Stan, by all accounts, were the most popular kids in town growing up. Yeah. You know, um, Ron had he's the older he's the older son. And, um, you know, in the early in his early school schoolboy years, he had to fight a lot. Mm. Apparently. Yeah. You know, but really, you know, once he like, you know, had a few fights and uh, held his ground. Mm -hmm. After that, it was, you know, by all accounts, it was pretty smooth sailing for them. And that was to me a revelation. You know, you yeah. think of, you know, here in Vancouver, I think we tend to look down at the, you know, the conservatives in Alberta and, you know, the cowboys and the rednecks and, the, you know, the oil hungry Albertans and so on. And yeah. I think we tend to, you know, look down our noses at them. But, um, you know, as Mark says in his book, you know, when we talk about racism, real racism comes wrapped in the flag. Mm. Right. When you meet people on an individual basis. Right. I mean, I could go, I think I could go to Alabama today or Mississippi today, you know, and I could go to have a nice family barbecue with whoever. Yeah. And, um, and in my own life, I would say that, that real ugly racism has barely ever come up yeah. in my, in my own life, in my own experience, you know, um, so yes, so the the racism that is really destructive and hurtful, uh, it does tend to be the institutionalized kind, the kind that it, that comes wrapped in the flag. Yeah, and uh, that was a real revelation to me to learn that these Japanese Canadian kids growing up in Medicine Hat, Alberta, right after the war, you know, they were not treated. They were not ostracized to yeah. the extent that I would have imagined, you know. Yeah. They had pretty normal Canadian lives. Yeah. And uh, and one of the great things about the story is um, what they've made of their lives, you know, in honor of their of their parents who suffered. Yeah. Um, growing up in Japan, did you mm -hmm. learn? at all about the Japanese-Canadian or Japanese-American experience of what happened during the war? Or was that something that you learned later on after you had come over to North America? I didn't, I didn't learn about it in Japan, yeah. but I learned about it, uh, you know, before. I grew up in Guelph, Ontario until I was 14. Was, it, was that because of your dad and the veterinary? Yes, yeah, because yeah. when we lived in Ontario, we had to take our dog to the vet hospital uh -huh, there. Yeah. yeah. One of the best in the country, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. yeah. So um, I think this, the seminal work about the Japanese-Canadian internment is a book by Ken Adachi called uh, The End... The Enemy That Never Was. Mm. Okay, there's, a, there's a book called The Enemy That Never Was, and that's kind of the, you know, the classic document about the internment. Um, and that came out in the early 70s when I still lived in, in Guelph. And uh, we had many friends in the Japanese-Canadian community um, who had experienced the internment. And so... You know, that was a book that was definitely circulating in that community. And I remember um, as an early teen, you know, reading it. And so that's that's when I learned about the internment. Yeah, it's it's still quite amazing to me that um, many Canadians who don't have uh, any roots or connections to Japanese culture don't know about our history of mm -hmm. uh, internment in this country. Yeah, and you know, as you as you were asking, you know, um, how does that tie in with what's going on now? Yeah, I mean, it's just <laughs> such a incredible historical lesson that we that we must learn and that we we do have to make sure everyone knows about because the things that are going on now with mm. immigrants, with the Muslim community, you know. Um, the things that some politicians are saying, 
Right. Yeah. It's exactly the same as as what was being said about Japanese Canadians mm-hmm. in the 1930s, you know, and the 1940s and after the war because the other uh, thing that even I did not know until fairly recently is that the Japanese Canadian internment was much harsher than the Amer- Japanese American internment for less reason obviously because Canada was not ever attacked and was never in danger of being attacked. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Japanese Canadians, after they were kicked out of BC, were not even allowed to return to BC yeah. for five years yeah. until after the war was over. <laughs> and all of their property obviously was sold off. Yeah, and that's so why they a lot nothing, didn't even bother coming well, back because they, they had lost nothing, nothing to come back to yeah. at that point. There are different organizations that you can get involved with in Vancouver to learn about the history of Japanese Canadians in the city, uh, beginning with Powell Street Festival that has an annual summer festival uh, in the area that was once known as uh, Vancouver's Japantown, uh, Oppenheimer Park and, and the area right near the Japanese language school. Every year they have a big uh, Matsuri summer festival and you can go on a walking tour and learn about the people people who 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 helped build the city who used to live here uh and i was gonna um, wear my vancouver asahi shirt today oh yeah, yeah. but I, I have an audition <laughs> later so i had to asahi yeah. was uh the vancouver asahi that's they recently had a um what is the word a commercial one of those heritage minute yes. uh, yep. uh appeared in a heritage minute uh commercial uh, they were the all japanese uh canadian team that played out of oppenheimer park and every year there's a uh, another spoiler, I worked for the Palestry Festival too, and I, oh, I take okay. my daughter uh, every year to Palestry Festival, but they do a big uh, baseball game every BC weekend. So it's uh, it's important to know our history in this. Absolutely. You know. And one encouraging thing, though, is that the BC government, I believe, is there's there's serious talk now that the BC, that there's a apology and reparation forthcoming from the BC government wow, okay. to Japanese Canadians because the federal government uh, obviously did that during the Mulroney days yeah but BC has never you know the province has never apologized or made any reparations yeah and that's very long overdue you know very so, very long yeah. overdue I mean frankly I, I'm as we're speaking I'm thinking about how much I've learned about this from theater from the from from the plays that I've seen or the or the or the galleries I've attended or there was a play last year the name is flying out of my head but it actually took place at the at the PNE oh, the Japanese problem the ja- Yoshia yeah Bancroft, the it was Japanese am- which was yep. amazing so you know it's another way if you want to learn more to to follow what's going on in the in th- in the theater scene you see you know? theater does have it, a role in it, society it, after it, all doesn't <laughs> it <laughs> I I saw that that I I went with uh, with Kira Zagorski, who's somebody who will be in in here as well, who's also been involved in the theater scene here. And we just we were speechless after, even though we'd known, like we were fortunate enough or interested enough to know, you know, oh yes, this this is where this happened, and this is where eight thousand Japanese Canadians were were held before being sent off to. But to actually be in that space, to see those images, to hear the music, to see the actors, it just it got us in a in in our hearts and in our in our guts like you carry it with you after and I still carry it with me so okay uh I I I usually end with this kind of question and it's about a I mentioned before and it's about WTF moments which means what the fuck you can actually swear on this show but Uh you know that like do you do you have moments in in your I was gonna say career. I'm not gonna say career, but but in your journey as an as an artist now, where you're like, what the fuck? This is actually my life. And if so, what are those moments? I got to work with Gary Oldman <gasps> earlier this year. Um, I had a very lengthy interview with. Uh, Viggo Mortensen <gasps> about a month earlier than that. So early this year I had um you know working on Limetown was a that was a quite a a great experience for me. And then working on Sea, you know, with yeah. Francis Lawrence and uh, uh that that was also a great experience, but you know, a lot 
just out of the blue, um, I guess a little over a year ago, I think it might have been last December, um, you know, I there was like a self-tape request for, uh, for a film. And um, I think I was aware that, that Viggo Mortensen had written it. It was like his first script that he had written himself. Yeah. And, you know, and there was the... Um, there was a part in it, and so I self-taped, you know, and I, and then I, you know, we didn't hear anything back for a while, and then at some point in January, um, I got a call from my agent saying, you know, Vigo wants to meet you. Wow. Um, and then very soon wow. after that, a couple of weeks after that, um, you know, he came into town, and uh, you know, we set up a meeting, and I assumed it would be like a half-hour meeting or a forty-five-minute meeting, and it. I think it wound up being over, we sat and talked for over two hours, you know. And ultimately, I didn't get the part, you know, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. Another Vancouver actor did. Terry Chen got the part. Okay. Yeah. Um, but that was a great, you know, that was just a, obviously, that was just like a great moment to to just be in the same room and just have a conversation with the guy for yeah. two hours. Yeah. About not just about the script, but about all kinds of things, you yeah. know. And uh, I mean, he's a poet as well. Yeah, like, and it was just really great to just like, um, I mean, it was, you know, there were, I mean, you could say a lot of things about it. I mean, it was obviously a great experience. It was a great affirmation to know that, you know, you could sit as a peer with someone like that and have a conversation and they wouldn't, you know, after 15 minutes, you know, decide to you know say goodbye yeah right um and then uh soon after that you know it was another self-tape for a film shooting in montreal and you know there was a part and i taped it and i had no idea who was in it i knew nothing about the thing except the audition size that they sent me yeah and then i got cast in it um and uh, I was like, well, what is this movie anyways? And then I, you know, I Googled the title and mm -hmm. I went on IMDb to see what it was about and who was involved. And uh, and then I gleaned that it's a movie called um, The Working... I don't know if this is actually what it would be called, but the working title is, is Dreamland. And it's... Um, the writer-director is a man named uh, Nicholas Jarecki. He's quite a young, young man, but he did... Um, film called Arbitrage with Richard Gere and Diane Lane that did very well about yeah. five or six years ago and this is his follow-up film and it's it's about the op opioid crisis oh. um, and there's three um, storylines there's um, a storyline about uh, a mother who's uh, you know she's suffering from the overdose death of her son yeah. there's a storyline set in the world of the traffickers and then there's a storyline um, set in the world of an academic who's, who's doing research with the pharmaceutical companies, mm. right? Um, and as I, like, read about, you know, I was reading these synopses online and looking at the cast, you know, mm -hmm. I suddenly realized, well, my scenes must be with Gary Oldman, right? Um, and so... You know, like all of a sudden, I went from like just being in this random project to all of a sudden, I realized we're going to be working with Gary Oldman. Oh. You know, what goes um, through your mind in that? And moment? then what happened was that I had, I was, I was uh, at Banff. I was supposed to be at Banff, right, working yeah. on forgiveness, and then. Um, I was going to miss a day because I had to fly to Montreal to, to do this shoot. Yeah. Um, but then what happened was they wanted me to come in a day earlier, you know, which at the time for me was like I didn't want to like lose all this time at Banff, you know. Yeah. I didn't actually want to go to Montreal a day earlier. But they said, well, we, we need to rehearse this scene, you know. And the, it was a dinner scene, right? in which I had one line, yeah. right? And I was like, really? Do I really need to to go, 
you know, miss my time at Banff and fly yeah. all the way to Montreal to, to rehearse a scene in which I have one line. One line, right. Well, I get there, and uh, it's me, Gary Oldman, Greg Kinnear, and Indira Varma. Okay, Indira Varma is Gary Oldman's wife, yeah. and Greg Kinnear is the dean of the college, right? Okay. <laughs> and then there are some background performers playing our various wives and so on, right? And that's who's there. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, it's just me, but, you know, there's no, it's just the actors that day, yeah. right? So is that, and then me and the director, and the director comes in and he says, yeah, you know, uh, I never really, the, the, the scene in the script is just a placeholder. I didn't actually, you know, write it properly. So let's, let's write the scene. Let's create this. Let's make it good now. So. Oh, wow. You know, so I had this incredible opportunity. Creative <laughs> opportunity. You can imagine, yeah. you know, for the next three or four hours with those people sitting in the room with those people creating the scene with wow. them and, you know, making up our lines. And uh, so that was, you know, again, I mean, those, you know, those are the two most recent ones. So they're the freshest ones and they stand out. And, they sound they're fun. Incredible. incredible. Fun, right? Yeah, like, really incredible. The, the, those are the experiences that you wish your entire career could be. Career. You use the word career? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm, as I said, I've made peace with the idea okay. of having a career now. And... But yes, those are the experiences that I wish my entire career could be from here on out. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you, Hiro Kanagawa, for joining us today. Where my can pleasure entirely. This was so Has fun. Has an hour gone by already? More than an hour. Get up. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, really. And I really think we could have kept going. I think so. But you'll have to come back. Where can our listeners find you on social media? Hero Kanagawa TV. Okay. On Instagram and and Twitter. And Twitter. And Facebook. I'm just Hero Kanagawa. Yeah. You 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 use social media a lot. Eh? You're you're. I follow you on on Twitter. You uh, use it very well. I like a lot of what you, you know, do. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't like Twitter at first. Yeah. I was not. I was actually not even going to do it. And now it's like almost my favorite thing. Yeah. You know, more so than I. I hardly. I'm on Facebook anymore at all. Yeah, yeah. I like Twitter because you can kind of create your experience as well and just like, I mean, when I was I was stranded in England when my husband was in hospital in August and I, I it was my lifeline to, mm-hmm. to the outside world, you know, like outside of my of my immediate trauma and grief like it was I I love Twitter and now that we're we're back I you know I can pick and choose how I how I use it but I definitely appreciate it in my life and I like the kind of stuff that you put out there into the thank you yeah you put a, a lot of food stuff as well I've noticed recently I don't yeah I don't put a lot of food stuff but recent but maybe the past couple of days I did, I've noticed know? yeah. I mean you've had I've, some so I put my this crepes I made for my son yeah and you were and posting my kombucha. about kombucha yeah, and yeah. soup. There was some soup. Oh, you were talking right. about yeah, soup. soup. Yeah. You've done some beautiful bowls of food. Yeah. No, no, you do. I'm telling you. As, as a, an expert in, the, in your Twitter feed, that's what I've <laughs> noticed. All right. All well, right. <laughs> thank you for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today as well. Please, if you haven't, like and subscribe and leave, leave us a review. Those really help us find new listeners. You can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVR. YVR Screen Scene. The YVR Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by myself, Sabrina Furminger. And it is produced and edited by Simon Furminger. Special thanks to Tyson Braddock and Paul Furminger for technical support and to Dane Develay for the original music. YVR Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cat!